Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hello, and welcome back to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. And we are here to tell you all about the family tree and the crimes of a famous murderer. Denise, I'm so excited because this was actually the murderer who, like, made me excited about true crime in general. Really? So a lot of people will probably know this, but let's just curl on up and come and listen to a story about a man named H.H. Holmes. Yes, and before we get started, I'm gonna just, for the new listeners, tell you how this works. We're gonna tell you about the person. Obviously, it's H.H. Holmes, which is very exciting. Um, I I will say that Zelda got very excited when I mentioned, hey, what do you think about doing H.H. Holmes? And I, I swear I saw her jump through her words on the computer screen. What we'll do is we'll talk about what H.H. Holmes did, and then we're going to get into his family and learn about them. Um, We might go into parts of his family tree. We might go all sorts of places. His tree is interesting, and this might be a long episode. So buckle up. We got a lot to say, and we're going to change things up today because Zelda is going to tell you all about what H.H. Holmes did. Are you ready, girl? I'm so excited. So, um, first of all, we're talking about H.H. Holmes, obviously, but it's not actually H.H. Holmes. That is just one of his many, many aliases. So, H.H. was born Herman Webster Mudgett. I mean, you really can't blame him for changing it around. So, no, right? That's what I thought when I learned his real name. Mm-hmm. And he was born on May 16, 1861, and died just a week shy of his 35th birthday on May 7, 1896. But, of course, it's what he did in between those dates that we care about. So, by all accounts, the adult H.H. was a grifter, a con man, a bigamist, a bigamist, a thief, and a cold-blooded murderer of innocents. And very, very prolific. He's like He'd be perfect for a cabinet position right now. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> little Herman had an uneventful childhood for the most part. Uh, there were rumors he tortured animals and was abused by his father. But those rumors were never really substantiated and actually came about long after his death. We do know his father was a devout Methodist, farm traded and did handiwork around their little town, Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Now, Denise, you're going to fill us in on more about that, so I'm not even going into it. (laughs) But little Herman was a crafty boy. After graduating from high school at age 16, he became a teacher and married his love, Clara Lovering, on Independence Day, 1878. He was 17. She was pregnant. Now... (laughs) Let's remember that Herman lived during the time of America's Gilded Age, the rise of corporate barons, steel industry, expansion across the U.S., the embrace of American exceptionalism, 
and various epidemics like yellow fever <laughs> swept across the country. This entire era was marked by this idea of the Protestant work ethic, that hard work and good choices lead not only to success, but actual wealth. Now, it wasn't really actually true any more then than it is now, but we all need some hope, right? So it also was a time of religious fervor. So groups like the Shakers saw their heyday, and the conception of denominations like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Science, all happened during this time period. And of course, spiritualism was on the rise. So America was on the move and encouraging big risks. And it kind of sets the stage for why Herman got away with what he did for so very long. It was an era made for con men. Yes. Now, our smart boy, newly married, young son, decided college was the way to go, but left after a year, and then a couple years later, enrolled into the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. So remember, you know, back then, you didn't really need a whole lot of education to call yourself a doctor. Right. And he barely graduated in 1884 because several faculty voted against it. But they decided to let the Clodhopper, as he was nicknamed, graduate because they knew he was married and had a family. So while he was there, Herman had shown an unusual interest in the intersection of anatomy and business. He used cadavers to defraud insurance companies. Hey, the man had a family to feed. Now, Herman began to move around a lot after this, always being trailed by suspicions and rumors. A little boy who disappeared, an abused wife. In fact, his wife Clara left him in 1884 and stayed the hell away from him, which likely spared her life and the life of their son Robert. So much like last week's antihero Swango, he worked in a hospital and left quickly when a mysterious death was linked to him. And undaunted by the fact he was already married, he got married again to a Murda Belknap in 1886, and they had a daughter, Lucy. They lived outside Chicago in Wilmette. Then, because Herman, who now went by Henry Howard Holmes, a nod to the great Sherlock, really was the marrying kind, he married a third woman, Georgiana Yoke, in 1894. No divorces, none of the women knew about the others, although they knew that he had affairs on them with lots of other women. But those three were all from respectable families. So it was about this time, HH began construction on a mixed-use building in Englewood, Illinois, just outside Chicago, which later was nicknamed his Murder Castle. Yeah. Then, as the great drowning pool wrapped, let the bodies hit the floor. Now, we could spend the next hour just talking about how very twisted this man was. His building, set up as a storefront with a boarding house upstairs, had elaborate torture rooms, hinged walls, false partitions, stairs and hallways that led nowhere, airtight rooms with gas lines, and chutes to dump bodies straight into the basement for processing. And he did not even pay for all this himself. He conned money out of women pretty easily. He got extensions from contractors, and then he'd throw a little bit of money here and there and kind of wave them off. He was the subject of over 50 lawsuits for unpaid bills and unfulfilled contracts. Wait, that sounds familiar. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, and he made money from selling body parts. So it was a Winchester mansion, which was being built at the same time in San Jose, California, by the way. But instead of housing ghosts, it created them. 
I feel like I should trademark that. Okay. <laughs> so you may wonder what the hell was going on with the construction workers that built the damn thing? Like, why didn't they notice he was building this super creepy building? I mean, you know, like the workers would notice there's no door to this room, right? You would hope. Well, some of them did, and then they were fired or walked off after not getting paid. A revolving door of workers kind of keeps everyone from seeing the whole picture. So adding to the confusion was the prep work the entire area was doing for the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, AKA the World's Fair. Millions of people, and I mean literally millions of people, swept through Chicago as workers and attendees. In the resulting chaos, it was not hard for grifters to grift. People who went missing weren't missed. It seems about 3,000 people went missing during the time of the World's Fair. Wow. Now, yeah. Now, these weren't murder victims. <laughs> Mostly yeah. these were people who took advantage of the chaos to create new lives for themselves with new identities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a few young women arriving in the city looking for a cheap place to stay, no relatives around. Holmes had some ripe pickings. But what's interesting is Holmes' mode of operation for murder most foul was usually to seduce a woman, con her for property and cash, then murder her and her children if they became inconvenient. His early victims, Julia and Pearl Smith, Emmeline Sagrande, Edna Van Tassel, Minnie Williams and her sister Anna Williams, also known as Nanny, were all murdered in this, in this fashion. And of course, every villain needs a henchman, right? And his was Benjamin Peitzel, a sometime carpenter, but mostly a criminal. H.H. murdered Peitzel in 1894 to receive insurance proceeds. <sighs> After all that man had done for him, no gratitude at all. So to add insult to injury, Holmes then manipulated his widow into signing over custody of three of her five children, who he did terrible things to before he murdered them. So let's take a step back for a moment. Things were happening fast in 1894. The murder castle was mysteriously burned, and Holmes was on the run for charges for arson-related insurance fraud. He was arrested in St. Louis and briefly incarcerated for selling mortgaged goods. So let's go a little hurrah for St. Louis that they were actually on top of the criminals at the point, you know? Um, as soon as he got bailed out, he set up an insurance fraud scheme with Peitzel and other associates, which led to Peitzel's death. Now, this insurance fraud is what led to the discovery of the murders and his eventual conviction. So how did the insurance company know something was afoot? I mean, they have Peitzel's body, he was definitely dead. Well, in October of 1894, the company had already paid out the insurance policy when they received a letter from Holmes's former St. Louis cellmate, Marion Hedgepeth. Holmes had shared his plans with Hedgepeth and Hedgepeth had expected $500 from him for referring him to Jephthah Howe, who actually helped him carry it out. The plan originally was for Peitzel to fake his death, not to actually die. When um, Hedgepeth didn't receive his $500 and he was kind of talking to Ho, it turned out, I'm sorry, not Ho, Howe, was kind of <laughs> talking to Howe, that Holmes had, in fact, actually killed Peitzel, which he had by chloroforming him and setting the building on fire. So what do we learn from this? Pay your designers and contractors. But pay your other cons, too, because they will turn you in. 
absolutely, absolutely. Um, had he received that $500, who knows when they would have gotten an, uh, any kind of lead on the kinds of things that this guy was doing. I mean, it's crazy. So Holmes was tracked to Boston and arrested by the Pinkertons. So this feels like a good time to mention that Holmes traveled at the drop of a hat. He's known to have lived in or traveled extensively to New Hampshire, Michigan, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Illinois, Indiana, Ontario, Canada, New York, Massachusetts, and England, of all places. The Pinkertons at first didn't have enough evidence to hold him, but got confirmation from Texas about an outstanding warrant for horse thievery and held him on the combined charges. So this leads us to a man by the name of Frank Geyer, who is actually kind of the hero of the story. He was a detective with the city of Philadelphia who was assigned to investigate the insurance fraud. So remember, this all started out, this is just insurance fraud. So as far as these guys know, I mean, this guy faked his death, you know? And so they realized, wait a second, no, this guy really is dead. Wait a second, he was murdered. It was murder most foul. So we're, they're gonna actually dig into it because they care about things like the person who murdered him getting an insurance payout. So Frank Geyer followed Holmes's trail, which led him through the Midwest and Toronto, Canada, where he found the remains of two of the Peitzel children. So remember, Mrs. Carrie Peitzel, she'd been brainwashed by Holmes to sign over three of her five children and thought her husband was still alive. Now, although she was involved in fraud, she had no idea her children had been murdered. So you think, how does a woman not know her husband's been murdered when they have the actual body? Well, what happened was part of the plan for having faking the death was that Benjamin Peitzel, once his death had been faked, would flee to England and hang out with the Williams sisters. Um, and this is all a story that Holmes just wove for them because the Williams sisters by this point were dead. But he was going to go to hang out in England with the Williams sisters. And, um, and then once everything quieted down, he would send for Mrs. Peitzel and the other kids, the two kids that were still with her. So Holmes told Mrs. Peitzel that her three children that for some reason seemingly disappeared were actually in England with her husband. So she's starting to sense something's awry, but you know, he's basically brainwashed her to believe everything that he says. So she's traveling with him during these times where, you know, they're in um, Indianapolis or they're in Toronto and her kids, the ones that, you know, were alive at these different times were literally only two blocks away at a different hotel. And she thought they were in England. So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy what this guy was able to pull over on people. Mm -hmm. So at this point, so there's a body though, like you have to go identify the body, right? Because it was fraud. They didn't, you know, Ms. Carrie Peitzel didn't want to go and as an adult lie, but you could send your 15 year old daughter to go and identify the quote unquote body, which was some cadaver supposedly that, you know, Holmes had picked up along the way. And the 15-year-old went over, and she never uh, was out of the clutches of Holmes from that point forward. But again, she went in. Um, she identified the burned body as that of her dad. They didn't find out. The Holmes, um, not the Holmes children, the Peitzels, the kids, probably figured it out fairly quickly. But they were basically, you know, under his complete control. So 
they didn't have, I mean, they were separated from both their parents. Their dad had was murdered and their mom's in a completely different city or nearby, but they don't know that. And they think their mom's still in St. Louis. So there's just like a whole bunch of brainwashing going on, which, you know, psychopaths can do these things, you know, and he was just smart enough to keep all the lies straight. Well, when Geyer got to Toronto and discovered the bodies of um, the two sisters. So, okay. At this point, they have tracked down H.H. Holmes. Let's remember that the Pinkertons have him. They've gone through his stuff. In his stuff were unsent letters that were written by the Peitzel children to their mom. And Geyer used information from those letters, and nobody knows why Holmes kept them, but he used those letters to track them to Toronto. In Toronto, he found the bodies of the two girls, Alice and Nellie. Then he continued his search and found the burnt remains of Howard Peitzel, the third child, in a house Holmes had rented in Irvington, Indianapolis. It all goes to trial. Holmes was found guilty of four counts of murder in the first degree and six counts of attempted murder. His total number of victims has been estimated at around 200. Wow. But Eric Larson, who wrote a lot about Holmes, obviously, in The Devil in the White City, which is the inspiration, that's the book I read that Mm -hmm. got me excited about true crime stuff. So, Eric Larson, this podcast is your fault. Um, (laughs) So he thought that was a bit of a gross exaggeration. Now, Holmes originally confessed to about 100 murders. He then pared it down to 27 murders. We know for sure he killed nine times. But everybody knows he actually killed more than that, but they can't prove who and how and when. Holmes was dramatic until the very end. His confession read like a penny dreadful in the Hearst newspapers and was found to be mostly nonsense. When he was hung on May 7th, 1896, he died very slowly from strangulation. Most of his known associates died in scandalous ways, such as being shot by police during a holdup, by suicide or poisoning. Then his coffin was buried under 10 feet of concrete to prevent grave robbing. (laughs) But talk about projection, right? Right. So... Because the drama never ends, in 2017, amid allegations Holmes had, in fact, escaped execution, Holmes's body was exhumed, um, and that was uh, University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Um, the team was led by Janet Monge. Go, ladies. Um, so, but due to his coffin being in cement, his body was, did not decompose normally, which I thought was kind of wild and a little odd factoid. His clothes were almost perfectly preserved, and his mustache was found to be intact. Isn't that weird? His mustache, of all things. Of all things. Um, And that's a very distinguishing mustache. He had a very distinguished mustache. He should have been a better person and lived up to that mustache. Right? (laughs) (laughs) The body was positively identified by his teeth as being that of Holmes. Holmes was then reburied. So, what happened to the murder castle? Well, it was gutted by arson in 1895, then renovated and used as commercial property until it was completely torn down in 1938. It is now the site of the Inglewood Post Office, which is purportedly haunted. So, remember Michael Swango, the serial killer from last week? Yes. In in his stuff, when he was arrested, 
was a passage he copied from a book on Holmes called The Torture Doctor by David Frankie. And the quote was, he could look at himself in a mirror and tell himself that he was one of the most powerful and dangerous men in the world. He could feel that he was a god in disguise. Wow. I didn't realize those two tied together in that way. Yeah. So apparently Michael Swango was quite inspired by the devious Herman Mudgett. <laughs> well, and if you recall, Swango kept his murder scrapbook. So I guess it makes sense that Holmes would have appealed to him because this is a case that's been around and talked about for years mm -hmm. and used in movies and TV shows and mm -hmm. as inspiration. Well, and one of the things that was scandalous and, um, I thought I had it here in, in my little write-up. I apparently just went ahead and skipped right over it, though. But, okay, so Geyer's findings in Toronto led to the investigations of the Chicago property. So in July 1895, so this is about 10 months after the gentleman in St. Louis ratted on Holmes. Okay. Um, they started investigating the building in Englewood. So there were tons of sensational claims made. But they couldn't find, couldn't find, in quotes, any direct evidence which could have convicted Holmes in Chicago. So that seems weird, right? Right. I mean, Indianapolis found evidence, St. Louis found evidence, Philadelphia found evidence. You would Chicago, think that all the places that would have evidence, it would be Chicago. Yeah. And it was specifically designed to murder people and sell their remains, right? Well, it probably didn't hurt that the chief of police had been Holmes's attorney in his prior career. Ah. Mm-hmm. And so literally the newspapers at the time said, it's an embarrassment to the city that we can't find um, evidence to convict him of the murders that obviously happened here. Um, but, you know, the Chicago machine at that time was working pretty hard. Yeah. So... I suspect that gentleman got paid a lot of money to not find evidence. So just a, just a thing there, little segue. Wow, that was great, Zelda. Thank you. I had a lot of fun looking at it. Um, I ripped a lot of this from Devil in the White City. Okay. Um, I shouldn't say ripped. I didn't plagiarize. But there's actually quite a bit of information on the interweb because it's so famous. But one of the things that I found curious that I couldn't find was he was convicted of four murders, right? Yes. But also six attempted murders. And I can't find who those people were. <clears throat> like, who, who did he try to kill and wasn't successful? Oh, you that's know? a good question. So I kind of wonder, I mean, three people off the top of my head would be the, you know, Carrie... Um, Pretz, I don't know why I can't remember that name. Peitzel. Peitzel. Peitzel and her two children, her oldest and her youngest, um, both survived all of this. Um, so there's three of them there, but who were the other three? So um, if anybody knows, dear listener, if you know who these people are, please let us know. Well, just so you know, because I, I was looking at some old newspapers, and I could probably look it up, and maybe if I find it, we can bring it back up someday on the um, podcast, but there was a newspaper that was literally writing down everything that was said during the trial and they were covering it day to day, what happened in the trial, what the testimony was. And I bet you through that, we could find out who it was. Interesting. Because well, it, was it was huge news. 
huge. Oh yeah. It, it was so interesting. The other interesting thing that I'm just, cause you know, there's no accounting for taste, right? And here this gentleman was literally like seducing women across the country. Um, you know, a complete grifter and con man, which I'm just kind of like, I've seen pictures. He was okay looking, but you know, that's how con men are, right? They're never like really beautiful. They just, they're kind of handsome, but mostly it's that they're really charming. Right. So one of the things that kind of got me like, huh, that's weird is that his second wife, Murda Belknap, her married name was Murda Belknap Holmes. And Holmes, remember, was never his real name. He didn't officially change his name. It was just one of his aliases. Well, even after all this came to light, he's in trial, he's been hung, they have a daughter, she retained the name Holmes, even like, I mean, for the rest of her life, she retained the name Holmes. Her daughter, Lucy, that was her maiden name. Um, and it's like, wow, that wasn't even his real name. Right. You know? it, it, so, and they did. They really did keep that name. And there's different theories on it. And some of it is, it was just so traumatic to have to change it. And we'll get into a little bit more about Myrtle in a minute. Oh, I can't wait. So just to let you know, I mean, there is so much information to find on Herman Mudgett, because I, I can't call him H.H. H. Holmes much longer because that's not his name. Um, so doing my research, I, I found him as Herman Mudgett and Doug, and I dug, and I found information on the back, but I didn't just go back in his tree. I wanted to know more about his wives, including his unofficial wife, Minnie R. Williams, because he told her they were getting married. Oh. Yes, but they never, it was never official. Oh, right. Yeah, the, it was one of his mistakes. He was lying to her, saying this is a marriage and we're marrying and here's the priest and all this, but it was a con. Mm-hmm. So she considered herself married to H.H. H. Holmes at the time. So because of that, I, I wanted to learn more about her as well. Okay. And I went down and looked at the, his children and from there, and it's wow. <laughs> so how many children did he end up having? Two. Okay. He had Robert Lovering Mudgett and Lucy Theodate Holmes. Okay. So, but before we go down, we'll go up and we're, we're going to look into his tree and it's fascinating. So like you mentioned, he was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, and his family had lived in Gilmanton for years. In fact, his family was one of the first ones to settle the area. Oh, wow. In, I believe in the mid-1700s, around 1760, the area Gilmanton was settled, and his family was there for that. His father was Levi Horton Mudgett, and he was born in 1827, and he met Theodate Page Price, Holmes's, uh, Herman's mother, and they were married in 1849, and they had a few children. Herman being one of the younger ones. Now, Levi was a business owner. And when you see him in the census, he's listed as a trader. But what a trader was is basically he had his own store. And he did a lot of business from the store and he was a shopkeeper. And at one point, money got tight and bills came due and he didn't have the money. He had to close his shop. This is around the time that Herman was born. Because at this time, while all that was going on, 
Levi became the postmaster for Gilmanton. Oh, that's a good job to have. My great-grandfather was a postmaster. I have a great-great-great-great-grandfather who is also a postmaster, and the town was named after him. So, postmasters rock. Ah. But he kept the post, so the post office was located as part of their house and became part of the store, and he was able to build up his business again. And he was successful. His wife was very devoted to her children, and in particular, to Herman. Hmm. Now, I found an interesting article, and I sent it to you just because I thought it would pique your interest. And it was titled Mother's Love, and it appeared in the Boston Globe on August 6, 1895. And this is the only place this article appeared, from what I can tell. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's an in-depth, whole-page summary of his family, which to me is like gold and who he was as a child. And so you get to learn from there that he, he really liked money. I can't help but think that because money was such a focus in his family's life and his dad was successful and they lost it for a time and they built it up. If he kind of got that idea from there, but that doesn't go into everything. And it was said about his mother was that She was very quiet and reserved, but she had a special something, a charisma that drew people to her. Mm -hmm. So I believe Herman inherited from his father that love of money and coin, Mm -hmm. and from his mother, the charisma which drew people to him. Mm -hmm. Now, he loved money so much that the neighbors had good things to say about him. This is a family that's deeply rooted in this town. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew them. And they said, well, he was a very polite boy, very good child. But there's always something I didn't quite like about him. Or, oh, well, there was this one time I'm pretty sure he stole money from me. But nothing was ever done about those incidents when it happened. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote from his mother in this article about her son. And she goes, yes. I suppose Herman was his mother's boy. He was always a kind-hearted, gentle little fellow. Herman never did anything wrong. He never had to be scolded for not doing as he was told, nor for playing pranks. He always talked to me of what he proposed to do, and I was always in his confidence. While he would take advice, yet if he made up his mind to do anything, nothing would change it. But when you ask me if he was soft-hearted, I can say yes, emphatically. I never knew him to torment anyone, especially animals. Some boys, you know, like to torment kittens, and sometimes they are very cruel to them. But Herman was too tender-hearted for anything like that. He was always very kind to animals. He did not have a strong stomach, and I have known the sight of blood to make him sick. When he cut his finger, the sight of the blood running made him weak. He was never lazy, but on the contrary, was almost too willing to work. There was not a lazy bone in his body. Herman never told a lie in his life to me. I will always believe what he says because he never deceived me. I believe what he says now just as much as ever. If there's anything more I could tell you about him, I should be glad to, for I can say nothing but good of him. Wow, I wish my own mother had been that gullible. Yes. Well, and what cracked me up about the whole thing is is she mentions the whole blood. The sight of blood made him weak. And I'm like, he went to medical school. Right. And he specialized in anatomy. That's cutting up a lot of corpses, you know? 
Right, but I mean, she saw, in her mind, Herman could do no wrong. I have a question. How many other siblings did he have? Let me, give me a quick second. Let me just double check, because I forgot. Because this sure part. sounds like he was a youngish child. I know my brother got spoiled tremendously being the youngest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, those youngest children are trouble. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One second. Thankfully, the vast majority do not grow up to be serial killers. Well, and no. And but what you usually hear about serial killers, and that's was another thing I found interesting, is that they like to torture animals mm -hmm. and tear them apart. So I almost wonder if she was saying that just to be, because she presumed that that was a sign. He was not the youngest. Um, Herman was the fourth child. The youngest was his sister Mary. Okay. Oh, wait, I am wrong again. I'm sorry. He was the third child. But what's interesting is the spacing of the children. They really spaced their children. And at a time when you, you didn't hear about that. So um, he was one of five children. The oldest was Ellen. She was born around 1852. He had a brother, Arthur, born in 1856. Then Herman came in 1861. Then his brother, Henry, in 1866 and his sister Mary around 1871. So they were having children every four to five years, hmm. which is unusual at that time to see children spaced so much. It does kind of make you wonder, um, especially because back then, you know, having 10 to 15 children wasn't really uncommon, that if perhaps there were miscarriages in between or stillbirths or anything like that, that wouldn't necessarily have made it into any kind of um, record. Right, I mean, and you'll see spaces because there was a stillborn child or there was a miscarriage, but they're not usually spaced so, so well between methodically. the child. Yeah, methodically, that's a good way to mm -hmm. put it. Now, one other little thing about Herman before I continue, um, he was considered a Romeo quite young. He loved women and there's a little bit about how he started to romance a girl who was visiting in town when he was 14. Um, he called on her evenings, went on long walks, and the two strolled uh, along dark roads. And this is from the, art, the same article about the mother's love. He said, um, and they sat on the stone walls and did their lovemaking in a very mature manner. Aww. And then on Sundays, he would take her out for a drive and and we're, we're not talking a car, people. It was horse and carriage back then. <laughs> um, but he proposed marriage to her at, when he was 14. He was very Aww. keen on getting married at a very young age. And so the village was watching this, and her aunt, who she was staying with, said, nope, we're not having any of this, and sent her home. So mm -hmm. that that would not happen again. Yeah, it's interesting. So his father was Levi, and I went down into the Mudget line and found a couple interesting things. And I, I don't want to get too detailed because it's hard to see it when you're listening. But I found the first Mudget that I could find who had been here um, was born in 1700 in Essex County, Massachusetts, which is a large area of Massachusetts that was first settled in the 1600s. And his name is John Mudgett, and he married a woman by the name of Susanna Scribner. And then they had a son, Edward Scribner Mudgett. And Edward 
was married to Sarah Smith. Now, Edward would be Herman's second great-grandfather, okay. and Sarah would be his <clears throat> second great-grandmother. Never met him because they died long before he was born. But Sarah comes from very prosperous beginnings because her family goes back through her mother's line to Sarah's grandmother, Theophilus Hardy, who was born in 1683 in Beverly, Massachusetts. And she was the daughter of a Mary Dudley and her father, Dr. Samuel Hardy. Now, Mary Dudley was the granddaughter. So this goes several generations back. So we're talking his sixth or seventh great-grandfather was Governor Thomas Dudley Esquire, one of the original governors of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yes. I found there was a book about the Dudley family and the Dudley line. And upon that, I found the following, that he resided in Northampton, England, as a young man, where he became a page for William Lord Compton, otherwise afterwards Earl of Northampton, from about 1590 to 1595. He received a captain's commission in 1596 at age 20. He raised a company of about 80 soldiers to join forces sent by Queen Elizabeth to aid Henri IV, Roy de France. At the siege of Amens, I believe that's how you pronounce it, he returned to England to take up the practice of law. So then in 1628, he obtained a patent from Charles I, King of England, for our planting between the Massachusetts Bay and Charles River on the south and the River of Merrimack on the north and three miles on either side of the rivers and bay. He and others went to Salem, Massachusetts in 1630 on the ship Arbella with Governor John Winthrop. In fact, his first wife was John Winthrop's daughter. Wow. But John Winthrop's daughter is not related to um, Herman, but, and he was a governor or assistant governor from 1630 to 1653. And it says this about him. He was a strict Puritan and was often inflexible in his views and autocratic in his behavior. He was known to be a thrifty man and an able man with excellent business acumen. And he became one of the largest landowners in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Well, now we know Herman got it. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it just, you go through and you're like, oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. all the stuff. Now, on his mother's side, I couldn't go as far back. There's, there's blocks, but I can say that his, his great-grandfather was William Price, born in 1752, and he actually was a Revolutionary War soldier. Um, not much else is really found on them, and I feel like I need to go back and look at something later, but, oh, yes, I forgot about this, and now I need to mention this. We're going to go back for a second because I forgot something. Levi Horton Mudgett's mother was Nancy Prescott, and her father was Samuel Prescott. Samuel was the grandson of James Prescott and Mary Bolter. Mary Bolter was the daughter of Nathaniel Bolter and Grace Swain. And this is why this is important. They lived in New Hampshire, and Grace Swain Bolter and her daughter Mary Bolter were accused of witchcraft. Really? Yes. They were on trial for it and everything. Somehow they survived it. I wasn't quite sure how to find how they managed to get out of that, but they were accused of witchcraft. And the whole reason was because Mary Bolter was given, her father died in, is it that? 
No, it was because of her mother, Grace Swain. Her father died and left her a great deal of money, which was unusual for the a daughter to be left amount of money, not her husband. It wasn't left to him. It was left to her. Mm-hmm. And so that was seen as a bit of witchcraft. Oh my gosh. It wow. Was, I, I was, oh my gosh, we have a witch too. <laughs> and that's a, a good idea of his family tree. I, I'll find a way so I can post it so so people can see, but I might just provide a link because there are a lot of people who've done research on this tree because so many people are fascinated by H.H. Holmes that there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who have research. Now, with the Dudley line, there is some, I couldn't find any confirmation. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a bit of a conflict on how far back the Dudleys go. Okay. There's no proof that it keeps going further back. And then and there's some people going, yeah, I've proved this. But the, if the rumors are true, it, his line goes all the way back to William the Conqueror. Wow. And look what he did with his life. William the Conqueror would be ashamed. <laughs> right? Although I think there was a couple of kings in there that would be like, way to go. Ah. <laughs> so it's true. We can't judge those times by these times. And there's a really, I found this website. It was famousken.com. So I'm, they're not sponsoring us. I just stumbled on it. And you can find out all the famous people that H.H. H. Holmes might be related to. And it's, it's interesting because like our actor Scott Foley would be a cousin. Oh my gosh. And so on and so forth. But well, so what do you give, what kind of credence do you give to this idea that H.H. H. Holmes may have been Jack the Ripper? I was, I'm going to get to that in a little bit, but I will say I don't believe it. Okay. And I have a couple of reasons for that, but I just, I don't believe it. And I've heard that he went to England, but I can't see where he went. It's hard to find that. I tried to find evidence of it, but it's really difficult in looking at some uh, passenger list because H. Holmes or Henry Holmes is a common name. And I don't even know if that's the name he used. Right. To go, what name he used to go to England. Now we're going to go down the line. And, and we're going to learn about the family. And then we're going to go back. I just give you a heads up because I do have a humdinger of a story to have at the end. <gasps> okay. But we'll start going down. We're going to talk about his wife, Clara Lovering. Okay. She was the daughter of Samuel Lovering and, his, and Lucy Grace. She was born in 1860 in Loudoun, New Hampshire. And like you said, they married on July 4th. And they did have one child, Robert, on the 3rd of February, 1880. Now, in the 1880 census, all of them lived with her father. Hmm. So he was apparently in school and he was helping with his father-in-law. His father-in-law helped him find a job working with an uncle and those types of things. And according to what I read is they were married for a while. They wandered off, went to Alton, New Hampshire, got married, came back and didn't tell anybody they got married. Oh, I didn't know that. It was a secret for a while. And then they came to know. Now, what I find in most interesting to it, I don't even know if I find it most interesting, but in, in the 1900 census, Clara Lovering is listed as a widow. By all rights, she was. This is true. <laughs> and she was listed as Clara Mud- Mudgett. Well, yes. 
That's right. I'm pretty sure. No, she actually, she wasn't. Up. She was not listed as Clara Mudgett. She was listed as Clara Lovering in the 1900 sentences. And now that could be for a couple of reasons. It could be because of who she was living with, which I'll get to in a minute. Or it could have to do with she, her trying to disassociate herself from Herman Mudgett. Because while a lot of us today hear him as H.H. Holmes, he was known as Mudgett mm-hmm. during the trial because everything came out. Now, in 1900, she was living with her brother, Frank, and another brother in Loudoun, New Hampshire, along with her son. But in 1906, she, re- she got married again, this time to a John T. Peverly. She never married again after he passed away, and she died in March 1956. Now, her son, Robert, in, 19, in the 1900 census, he would have been about 20, he was working as a fireman at a steam mill. Now, uh, four years later, this is two years before his mom marries again, he got married to Alexandra Gilbert, who was from Fairfield, Vermont. They had two children in quick succession, I might add. The first one being named Morris Lovering Mudgett, born in May 1905 in Vermont, and the second being Bertram Harold Mudgett. He was born in May 1906. Hmm. But here's where it starts to get really interesting, because this marriage did not last very long for Robert and Alexandra. Hmm. He is missing from the 1910 census. In fact, I can't find him or his sons in the 1910 census. But I did find his wife working as a servant at a private residence in Pasadena, California. Now, she's listed as Mary, but her kids were not with her. And I tried to see if maybe they were with a grandmother. Mm-hmm. They, they are nowhere to be found. Now, it becomes clear, though, that Robert and Alexandra divorced. Because in August 1915, Alexandra marries Eugene Smith. I feel bad for Alexandra because that marriage didn't last either because her husband died in 1919. Was it the Spanish flu? It's possible. I could not find his cause of death anywhere, but it wouldn't surprise me given the times. She never married again and died in 1964. But her children were living with her in 1920. Now, Robert also married again, this time in November 1923, to a woman by the name of Mary Reist in Volusia, Florida. So here's his ex-wife, Alexandra, in California. Robert, Herman's son, is in Florida. In 19, before he got married to her, though, in 1917, he was up in Wisconsin working as a certified public accountant, a CPA, um, from the World War I draft information I got that. So sometime between then and 1923, he moved to Florida. His Marriage to her. this wife didn't last very long because she died young oh, in 1934. Wow. Mm. And all my evidence shows that he had, I, I, from everything I can gather, I don't think he had any type of relationship with his sons. Okay. I'll, I'll get to where my evidence is on that in a little bit, but he died in 1956. Okay. Now, like I said, in 1920, Alexandra and her children lived in Pasadena, California, and she's working as a stenographer at the time. Now, we're going to talk about Herman's grandson. We'll start with Morris. He, at some point, changes his name to Maurice, and he grows up, and he actually passes away in California. He spends the rest of his whole life, once they move there, in California. And he marries a Margie Porter, 
and there was a notice in the paper, the little Pasadena paper, it was a front page society page announcing their marriage. And I'm gonna share that on the website so people can see this. Oh, fun. Um, and his family, Maurice's family, his children, his wife, they are regularly mentioned in the local paper for years until I have access. But he married her in 1929 and they had two daughters. Now, I found some interesting information about his wife and his, their kids and it's pretty cool. There was an article in the San Bernardino paper in 1946 about his wife, Mrs. Margie Mudgett. Apparently, this here's the title, Dressmaker to Rose Tournament Queens to Quit. She's too busy. <laughs> That's great. And it turns out that Mrs. Margie Mudgett had been the Rose Queen dressmaker for a few years. And ha she even had her own dressmaking shop in Pasadena for 14 years. And she started doing the dressmaking for the Rose Tournament in 1940. And it just got too busy and she needed to stop. Wow. And I believe that part of that is her daughters at that time would have been teenagers and been getting more busy with school and things. And mm -hmm. that was probably her focus. So it's a great little article. Now they had two daughters. I'm not going to really say their names. They're still alive. Yeah. Um, yes. As far as I can tell, they're both alive. One has been mentioned in a newspaper article, but still I don't get the impression yeah. she wants a lot of attention because when you discussed how his body was, pulled up and they used DNA, they used DNA to figure out if it was him and they used mm -hmm. DNA from his great grandchildren. Okay. But their oldest daughter, there was a note in the paper saying that she planned to go to college for pre-med. <laughs> and she was actually in a pre-med club in high school. Interesting. I found that and I could, I looked and I dug and I'm like, oh, I got to know, did she become a doctor? <laughs> but I couldn't find anything on that. And one other thing is her, Maurice was a very respected member of society in, in that mm -hmm. area. And he was even installed as the worshipful master of Damascus Lodge 648, a Masonic Lodge. Those Masons, In 1955. Man. Those Masons. <laughs> well, we'll talk about, uh, now uh, we'll go to Bertram Harold Mudgett, his other grandson and brother to Maurice. Born a year later, he married in 1930, Gail Lee Green. And I found articles with Gail's mention, Gail Mudgett, because she was a very, or is, I can't, I'm, no, was, a very passionate cons conservationist. Oh, wow. And he actually worked at one point for PG&E and worked closely with the water supply in California. That's really interesting. Yeah. Now, they had two boys. And again, two boys and a daughter, I should say. I'm not going to go into too closely, but they had another son. Um, they had a grandson named Jeffrey Lee Mudgett. And I'm going to tell you about him because he wrote a book in 2000, that was published in 2011 called Bloodstains. It's a fictional account of his second great-grandfather, mm -hmm. Herman Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. H. Holmes. Wow. Right? Now, I, 
There was an interview he had with a woman by the name of Laura Hannum that I found in 2017. And this is what it says about when he discovered who his second great grandfather was, because this was not shared in his family at all. They were trying well, to I can imagine him. not. <laughs> Jeff was sitting down for a family gathering when his grandmother announced she'd recently hired a genealogist. She wanted to find out whether her family was related to Civil War General Robert E. Lee, only to be told not only that they weren't, but she should let sleeping dogs lie as her family was related to a criminal who had been hung for stealing horses. Mm -hmm. Jeff's brother questioned whether this could be H.H. Holmes, who was also sentenced to death for selling horses. Mm -hmm. And that probably became because they had the same last name of Mudgett. In response, their father, now the article says their father, my guess is it was their grandfather, because I've seen that elsewhere, but exploded, declaring, that name shall never be mentioned at this table again. And Jeff and his brother soon realized that they were related to H.H. Holmes. Wow. And it is Mudgett, Jeffrey Mudgett, that has posited the theory that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. Oh. And he was the one who requested that the body be exhumed because he did not believe his second great grandfather was buried. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Now, why I think they, there was no relationship with their, his grandfather, Robert Lovering Mudgett, Herman's son is because an interview in the paper with Lacona Daly in 2012, Jeffrey Mudgett said that his great grandfather's name was David Mudgett. So I think not knowing your grandfather's name yeah. <laughs> is a sign that yeah. there wasn't a relationship. And my guess from what I've seen is Robert probably left the family and left them alone. Oh, yeah. And, and Oh, my gosh. I, I can't help but wonder if it, some of that came from the damage done from being Herman Mudgett's son. Oh, sure. Well, and then they get as far away from New Hampshire as you can get and still stay, stay on the continent. Right. I'm like, right. Mm. But at one point, Robert did return to New Hampshire after his, his second wife died because he did die in 1956 in New Hampshire. You know, maybe he got, you know, dragged back at some point. But, right. you know, honestly, you know, Florida, New Hampshire... Was he tired of sunshine? Is that what happened? <laughs> or humidity? Yeah. Well, some of us are not built for humidity. I'll just say that. But he worked as a CPA there and might worked for the city at one point as a CPA. But mm-hmm. well, let's go to Herman's second wife. I, mm-hmm. I want to air quote that because while they got married in Illinois, he was already <laughs> married. Now, Herman did file for divorce. Yes, yeah, and just they never went through with it. But she never received the divorce papers. Mm -hmm. It never finished. But, you know, without signing, it doesn't count. I will say, though, he sent the divorce papers before he married Berta around November 1886. And they did have one child, Lucy Theodate Holmes, who was born on July 4th, 1889, which would be his 11th wedding anniversary to Clara. (laughs) <laughs> yes now Myrna was the daughter of John Belknap and Lucy Beers and she had one brother John and Lucy and not Lucy but Myrna was a teacher she never remarried after Holmes died 
In the 1910 census, the 1920 census, she lists herself as a widow. <laughs> so the question is, you know, people talk, well, did she hold on to the name Holmes for the sake of her daughter? I think she held on to it because she was still in love with Mudgett. Yeah. But in the 1910 census, they're both still living in Illinois, and they're both teachers. In 1913, though, she and her daughter, Lucy, moved to Duluth, Minnesota. Now, sometime between 1920 and 1924, Myrta moved to Pawpaw, Michigan. And I, believe it's because, I believe that's because that's where her daughter moved, and that's she followed where she went. And at the age of 62 in 1924, Myrta passed away. Now, one thing to note about Lucy, the daughter, yeah, I just had it, and then it just fled from my head. Don't get old, people. It's not fun. Huh. You, you just forget stuff. Oh, I remember. So I told you, Lucy was born on July the 4th. Now, here's the most interesting part of where she was born. They lived in Wilmette, right? But mm -hmm. she was born in Inglewood. Oh. So it's possible she was born in the murder castle. Lucy, in 1918, applies. She's working as a teacher in Duluth. She's very patriotic. She even writes a play for heaven's sakes, about the war effort for World War I. Mm -hmm. And it was shared in all the schools performed to the play she wrote. She applies for a passport. And on the application for the passport in 1918, it mentions that she's a supervisor for the Junior Red Cross in all those county schools. And that she was planning to go to France and England with the YWCA doing overseas war work. Mm. And she did. She headed over there and she was volunteering and helping in France mainly. While she's in France, she meets James Douglas Hunter, Lieutenant James Douglas Hunter, a soldier for the United States who's from Duluth, where she had lived. Take a moment to appreciate a man in uniform. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they married in France. Oh, nice. In May 1919. They return home and they go to Michigan. And she marries him again there. My <laughs> you just can't be too married, huh? And that's what her mother would tell her. You can't be too, you need to make sure you're actually married. <laughs> I believe they got married because Lucy was pregnant and they had a baby named Ronald Douglas, but he died at birth. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. According to the death certificate, he was a breech birth and he died of asphyxiation. Oh my God. So it was, I can't imagine, <laughs> but the marriage did not last. And four years later, she filed for divorce for extreme cruelty and non-support. And they divorced in November 1923 in Michigan. From there, she returned, probably likely after her mother died, um, returned to Illinois, where she meets Thomas Moss, a man just a few years her senior, from, who's from England originally. And they get married in June 1927 in Chicago. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Thomas Moss, because mm. I get the impression Lucy needed to have better selection of men. She wasn't. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking there was a lack of good role models in her life. I don't know why that yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to be truthful, I imagine many a suitor turned around and ran when they realized who her dad was. Yes, but you would think she wouldn't be going, oh, guess who my dad was? Um, but you never know. Thomas Moss immigrated to Alberta, Canada in 1910. 
He was married, had two daughters, and his wife and his two children stayed in England while he got set up in Canada. Then he came and followed, they came and followed, and they were living with him by 1916 in the census in the area. Okay. But he left his wife in around 1923 after 15 years of marriage and headed to Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm. Mm -hmm. So then at some point, and I couldn't quite figure out when it would have happened, but he meets Lucy and they get married in 1927 and then they move to California. So at this point now, all of Herman Mudgett's children live in California by 1930. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. In August 1936, he files a declaration of intent to become a citizen. And it, there you realize he mentions his wife, but he uses the phrase, was my wife. Oh. Legally separated, or at least separated at this point. So he files for this declaration of intent in August 1936, and he dies a few short months later in February 1937. Mm. Lucy made sure he was very next to her. So oh, whatever happens, nice. she stayed with him in death. She never remarried, and she died in 1956 in California. Oh, my. Now, before I go further, I had to write out a little timeline for myself because I kept seeing similar dates. Like 1956. Yes, you <laughs> caught it, too, because I found this fascinating, and I guess I'm just weird that way. I'm, I'm kind of a nerd in my own way. But in 1956, Clara died in March. There's her son with A.J.H. Holmes dies in November, and Herman's daughter Lucy dies in December of 1956. And I just found yeah. that like, whoa. Well, I have to tell you, it was kind of downright creepy um, when you realize how many people associated with H.H. Holmes like died freakishly or in some sort of odd coincidence, you like know, this. like this, it's an odd coincidence. I mean, they weren't murdered. They died of natural causes and, you know, and here's another odd coincidence. Her brother, her half brother, Robert married mm -hmm. his second wife, Mary right, Priest in 1923 and Lucy divorced her first husband in 1923. And they both did this in November. That is crazy. Yeah, there's just little things that you're going, that's odd. So I had to write out this list going, am I imagining things or? Right. Yeah. yeah. It is so weird, all these little parallels. But if you ever really want to creep yourself out, like, go look up all of the people that were associated with H.H. H. Holmes' various crimes Mm -hmm. And look at the kind of lives that happened afterwards. I mean, now not like like Frank Geyer, the investigator, there was like this rumor that his wife and daughter had been killed in a fire and that wasn't true at all. They all lived, you know, good long lives. Um, but a lot of other people didn't. And right. it's, and what gives me the creeps about it because, you know, I'm Catholic and I believe in angels and demons. Right. I believe is that, you know, he likened himself to the devil up until the point where he passed away or he was, you know, uh, executed. And a lot of people were like, yeah, you kind of seem demonic. <laughs> you know, people who went to visit him, like, or interviewed him or had anything to do with him were like, yeah, he seemed to kind of be surrounded by demons. And it's like, yeah, I hope somebody just thought to pour a cup of holy water on his head before they hung him because, oh boy. That's the kind of evil you don't want unleashed in the world. Oh, no. Well, we're going to go to his third official wife, although 
<laughs> one that he actually married and there were paperwork yeah. on. And that's George, Georgiana D. Yoke. Um, mm -hmm. She was born in 1869 in Indiana, and they married January 1894 in Denver, Colorado. She testified against Holmes. Yes, doesn't that rock your boat? Yes, and not only did she testify, when she showed up to testify, she was announced as Georgiana Yoke. She uh -huh. dropped that home spit right away. Mm -hmm. She wasn't having that. Well, and it seems that she was quite the glamorous gal for the time. You know, they were like, just like some of the newspaper stuff would described her clothing yes. and, you know, her lithsome figure. And <laughs> it's like, oh my God. Okay. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. And let oh, talk. no, no, you're fine. She actually married again a few years, not long after Holmes was executed to a Harry Chapman in 1898 in Indiana. And they relocated to Southern California. Wait, I was going to say, was it California? Yes. Well, everyone was told to go west. <laughs> yeah, and she died in July 1945. She never had any children of her own. Oh, well, I'm yeah. sorry about that and the date of her death because that's, you know, right when World War II was ending and she missed yeah, it. Yeah, I haven't even thought about it that way. That's interesting. Well, I'm going to go to his third wife of okay. sorts. Because it gets missed, I notice, as calling his wife, but she really believed they got married. And that's Minnie okay, R. Williams. Okay, you mean his fourth wife after Georgiana? Actually, they, he married Minnie Williams in around 1893. He married Georgiana in 1894. Unless okay. I got something off. Okay. Time-wise. So because he was married to Georgiana when he was arrested. Yes. So Minnie Williams happened before all that. Okay, so you're, but you're talking about not the three wives we've talked about already. Right. So we're going to go to Aunt Minnie R. Williams because he was, she's unique in his wives in that they did not get legally married. He did have somebody come over say he was a pastor. Hey, we're getting married because she was a bit of an heiress. Mm -hmm. She had money and her sister Nanny had money and he mm -hmm. wanted their money and she was respectable. Mm -hmm. So to get that money, he quote unquote married her. So in her heart, she was married to him. Now, there's a lot of things I notice about articles, about the book. They never really get into who her parents are because they talk about her being an orphan. Mm -hmm. It really is a tragic story. So I wanted to know more. I wanted to know who she was, who her parents were, because I, I know this sounds weird, but I felt like it, it's a tribute to her, that she needs to be connected to these people. Mm -hmm and not just her uncles and aunts. But in, in different articles, it's mentioned she had an uncle who was a Dr. J.N.B. Williams, mm -hmm. and she had an uncle named uh, Reverend W.C. Black. Okay. So that was some of my clues. And I discovered another book called H.H. By, called Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil by Adam Selzer. And in his book, he leaves the following clues, that her father was called H.B. Williams, that the uncle, Dr. J. M. B. Williams, lived in Dallas, and that's where Minnie went after her parents died, and that her sister Nanny lived with an aunt, Lucy Marshall. Dr. J. M. B. Williams died, so let me go back to her parents and what we did know beforehand. Her father and mother died while she was a child. She was born in 1868. They died by the time she was four or five. Both of her parents are dead. 
her father apparently was in an accident with a train, with it crushing his skull. And his, her mother either died the year before he died in 1872 or the year after. That part is not clear. So she goes to live with her uncle, Dr. J.M.B. Williams, and he's so smitten with her, he apparently adopts her. But then he dies in September 1879. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's tragedy after tragedy for her while her cousin while her younger sister went to live with her aunt Mm -hmm. they also had a brother and this is what i find fascinating they never say what happened to her brother where did he go and i still haven't quite figured that out but i did find the following with the clues i was given and i dug and I dug, and I thought for sure I found trails. And I was getting so frustrated because I kept following the wrong trail. Because when you have a name like W.C. Black, you want to know how many blacks there are, last name blacks there are in the universe who live yeah. in the South? Uh-huh. Well, I know how many Williams. <laughs> I mean, I have a Williams in my family line. I know how difficult that is, but at least my great-grandfather was Napoleon <laughs> great grandfather was Napoleon Williams because that's a little easier to find than a name. That's funny. Like with initials. And finding initials is hard. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you kind of have an idea. So, but eventually I made a breakthrough. So I just found Nanny in the 1880 census living with her Aunt Lucy. And it turns out she wasn't just living with her Aunt Lucy Marshall. And her aunt was not married. So knowing that her aunt wasn't married and it was an aunt, I figured that was her mother's sister. Mm-hmm. But Lucy Marshall, common name. So that's not going to help me a ton. They're living in Mississippi, but they're both living with Nanny and Minnie's uncle, Chauncey. That's a great name. Marshall. It's a great name. And his wife, Amanda. And Chauncey's a lot easier to find. <laughs> As long as, along with some cousins. Uh Well, because I had that information, I was able to find Lucy and her brother Chauncey in the 1860 census with their parents, Joseph and Lucy. So that's the grandparents of many were Joseph and Lucy Marshall and all 13 of their children. 13. Wow. That woman was generous. Yes, and one of those was a daughter named Nancy. Nancy. Hmm. Actually, her name was listed as Nanny, but in other instances, it was listed as Nancy. Okay. Okay, which caught my eye because I was looking through marriage records for that H.B. Williams, and there was an mm-hmm. H.B. Williams who married a Nanny Marshall in April 1865, which is the same date that the newspaper said that her parents were married. Oh, nice. Not only that, but Nancy's sister, Phoebe, was married to a Reverend W.C. Black oh. in March 1865. And it was the same uncle who was mentioned. So now I know Minnie Williams' mother's name is Nancy Marshall, otherwise known as Nanny. But how about dad? It's just H.B. So, like I said, finding that is hard. But I dug, and then in the 1870 census... I did find Dr. J.M.B. Williams. He was born in Mississippi, and he was a physician. In 1870, he lived in Texas with an Emma, who was born in Missouri, and 20 years his junior. And I couldn't quite gather if that was a daughter 
or if it was a wife. So I'm still digging and that didn't help me. And then I finally dawns on me. I look at another newspaper article and it says that her Minnie's father died by the train in Madison County, Mississippi. Okay. So I look in the census in 1870 in Madison County for anybody with the last name Williams and I find them. Yay. I was so excited. So then it gives me a better age for Minnie and everything else. So from that, I discovered Minnie was born around 1868. She was the middle child, not the oldest. Mm -hmm. Her brother was Baldwin. Now, his name was not listed as Baldwin. I found his middle name here. And I'll share that in a minute because his middle name is the same as his father's first name. He was born in 1867. Her father was Hansford Williams, who was born around 1830 in Alabama. So now... We know the names of the parents of many are Williams. Nice. And, and these are the grandparents of Lucy Holmes or um, Lucy. No, I'm sorry. No, this is Minnie Williams. Right. Perfect. Okay. Job. I'm on the, I'm on the track again. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. It I got happened. kind of distracted by the Lucy woven in there and I was like, wait right. a second, but that's a different Lucy. Okay. I know it's a different this Lucy. Is genealogy Lucy is hard. Yeah, so I'm just so excited because I feel like now people know. And I look to see if other people had this information. And I see some people following, I think, the Marshall line, and they have Hansford with Nancy, but they don't have any idea that the Minnie, William, Minnie that's listed is the victim of Henry Holmes or mm-hmm. Henry Herman Mudgett. I know we've already gone a long way, but now I have a story to tell you. Okay, I'm like super excited. Okay, so Herman had, like I said, he was one of one of five siblings, and one of his brothers was Arthur. So okay. I went, I do what I do. I try to see if I can find anything, and I kept seeing an article that popped up about an Arthur Mudgett in Vermont. But I quickly ruled him out as Herman's brother because he was too young and different things. But then I got curious. I'm like, can he be related? And sure enough, he is their fourth cousins. Okay. And it, it, it's a very frightening story in its own way, but it starts on August 4th, 1920, when the following is in the paper, Mysterious Death of Johnson Girl. The partially decomposed body of Amy Shonio, a 19-year-old worker in the Johnson Woolen Mill, was found near the so-called New Cemetery in Johnson at about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. She was bound, found by four of her co-workers. The girl had been employed at the mill for about a year, coming there from her home in Stowe. She was a quiet, unassuming girl and had been in rather poor health for some time. The cause of her death is unknown, but is believed that she committed suicide by taking poison, although the manner of her taking it remained a mystery last night. She had left her boarding house on Saturday night and had not been seen since. So it's believed that she died that night. So she had been missing since July 31st. And she's found in the cemetery. And the reporters hadn't seen the body. This is just what had been told to them. Okay. Oh, it gets so much better. Okay. I feel, I mean, not for poor Amy Shonio. I think that's how you pronounce it, so... Yeah, pre-Amy Chonyel, the 19-year-old factory girl whose mutilated body was found on a lonely hilltop outside this town a week ago 
was the victim of a fiend whose attack was of almost inhuman atrocity. The autopsy upon the young girl's body revealed the horrible injuries inflicted upon her when she was choked to death after an attempt was made to perform an illegal operation. So this is a week later. So I'm assuming the illegal operation was an abortion. Very good. Yes, because it came out that the reason she wasn't feeling well was she was pregnant. Oh, my God, that poor girl. Yes. Arthur Mudgett, a 36-year-old woodsman, is in the Lamoille County Jail at Hyde Park, charged with responsibility for the girl's death. Yesterday, counsel was procured to prepare Mudgett's defense to the state's accusation that he foully murdered the girl after he lured her to a lonely place in the hills. There has to be more. Is okay. there, are there more details? Okay. Yes. There's more. Um, so I'm going to back up for a second. Arthur Mudgett, Arthur William Mudgett, he was born around 1883. He was married at the time and was separated from his wife and had been since 1912. That's now 1920. And he's basically accused of trying to abort the baby and then strangling her. Oh, my God. And that he was the father of said baby. Oh, my God. Amy came to Johnson, Vermont in August 1919 and got a room at the home of this woman by the name of Mrs. Harriet Foster. Arthur was a frequent visitor on weekend evenings starting around September 1919 or October. Mm -hmm. um, at some points, Arthur even roomed at this house as well. Okay. And... A little side note, his wife testified against him regarding his handwriting in the trial, even. Mm -hmm. It was brought in. And there's like a huge article on all this evidence that's presented and about where he was and what he did. But it was, it came out like at first he denied that he really knew her, then he admitted he did. First he denied he had intimate relations, then he admitted he did. First, he denied he wrote letters, then he admitted he did. And they even brought in investigators from Boston, private investigators, because this is back at the time when you didn't have a lot of detective units with police still, that, like homicide detectives that you think of today. So they would hire people out. There was an article also that same week talking about that he had been interviewed and there was a, mar a warrant charging his death. And it said he was questioned at considerable length, denying intimacies with the girl, but is said to admit it afterward that he knew of her condition, that she was pregnant. Wow. And they never straight out say that she was pregnant and different things, that she was in condition or she was expecting child or those types of things. And she's a single girl. They hold a trial, December 29th, 1920, Mudgett guilty. And all, all the members of the jury, and they even, in a newspaper article, list all the jury members and who they are and give a background on them during the trial. Could you imagine doing that today? I just, no. Right? But the jury in the case of Arthur Mudgett, charged with the murder of Miss Amy Shoniel, returned a verdict of guilty of manslaughter. The jury had been out within five minutes of four hours. Wow. Um, the judge, Sherman R. Moulton, made his charge to the jury in the case of the state versus Arthur Mudgett. Uh, the closing arguments in the case resulting from a particularly brutal murder, the choking death of a mere girl after an illegal operation had been attempted, were made Friday by Attorney General 
Archibald for the state and David Porter for the accused. So, and it, this happened over the holiday, the Christmas holiday. So they're, <laughs> so they had to stay and figure out what that was going on and finish the trial during the holiday. A sentence of 30 to 35 years in the state prison was imposed upon Mudgett, who showed no emotion as the sentence was pronounced. And then it goes on to tell what happened and what was found, and that they believe that the operation he tried to do on her was bungled, and then he just killed her to take care of it. Oh now, my God. he was sentenced to 30 to 35 years. And I believe I read it was actually no less than 30 years or was how it was phrased. So I was kind of surprised to learn that within 10 years he was released. Huh. That's curious. And maybe even a little less. Do we know how he got released so early? I, I tried to find any hint of it, anything in the papers, because you would think this man's been sentenced that would come out why he was released and that would be a new story. But no, it was just like casual mentions like Arthur Mudgett went to visit his mother. Wow. And I know it's the same Arthur Mudgett. <laughs> you know, what I find fascinating about all of this genealogy stuff with H.H. H. Holmes, that he had quite a few, you know, a few doctors muddled up in there as ancestors and traders and farmers and fairly successful people yes. who, you know, worked hard and had decent lives. Um, and then, you know, some criminals sprinkled in. And I find it fascinating that this guy like killed a woman, his what fourth cousin you said, mm -hmm. killed this woman because he tried to be a doctor to cover up a crime. Oh, I never thought of that. Back then, you know, it was illegal to, you know, have affairs and stuff. So, um, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and my guess is, I, I, I don't know enough of the forensics on the case, but I would think that she probably was not willing to have the abortion from him. Because would you really go to a hill? Right. For something that intimate? Mm -hmm. Because they looked for evidence in the room and they couldn't find any blood evidence at the time and when they were looking for her. So you would think that something like that would have been more obvious. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of blood involved. Yes. So, oh my God, that's horrible. Oh, and now, he had children, I'm assuming. And from with his wife. I believe he did. Yes. Okay. Wow. Could you imagine being the wife of a monster like that? No. Not no. any of the wives involved in any of the men we were, we've been and, talking and she, about. <laughs> I do believe she did divorce him. Okay. I'd have to go back and verify, but that, that was over. And my impression is that he stayed in Johnson County. So I don't know that he wasn't necessarily in, or in Johnson, yeah, Johnson, Vermont, which is, I think the County, because that's where he died. But God, you know, I can't even imagine what his life was like when he got out of prison and goes to his hometown where everybody knows what a monster he is. Well, he, like, and it's not even so much he went to his hometown. He went to the town where he committed the murder. The county. Oh, for some reason, I thought that was the same town. No, okay. no. His hometown was elsewhere where his wife was living. Wow. So That's... it could be that he was out of prison, but he had to stay within a certain mileage range because it yeah a probation or 
That is so crazy. H.H. Holmes, yeah. Herman Mudgett, came from a crazy family. Oh, he did. It's wow. And that is the family and murders of H.H. H. Holmes. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And leave us a good review so more people find us. You can also find us on social media as well as our website, murderousroots.com, where murder and family meet.